Thank you for joining Isolated Together. I'm your host, David DeRoche. We are doing Isolated Together. It's a podcast about how we're dealing with the pandemic from a lot of different fronts, uh, trying to talk about positive, inspiring stories, also talking about some struggles that we're dealing with, and, and really just a way for us to just get together and talk about our lives and talk about what's happening, how we're dealing with it. Uh, and today, I think, is a special episode. I got a great guest, Catherine Tillery, who I know as Catherine O'Neill, but we haven't actually talked in probably 20 years, so I'm so happy to have you here. Catherine and I went to middle school and high school together, and I, I remember Catherine always having a great sense of humor. You always had that that very wonderful deadpan, like, I don't know what you're talking about, but you really did. And I was like, <laughs> I was like she's really good at that. She'll, she could make a living off that someday. But instead, she's made a living as a nurse practitioner. She's a nurse practitioner at the ICU at Centera Virginia Beach Hospital. So first of all, Catherine, thank you so much for the work that you're doing. I know it cannot be easy. Um, and thank you for joining us today. So just real quick, Catherine, talk about what got you into nursing and um, why you wanted to become a nurse to begin with. Well, initially, I actually went to school and um, wanted to become a social worker. And um, everyone in that I knew um, completely poo-pooed that and was like, you will make no money. You And then I talked to someone and said they said, you should be a social worker as a nurse in the hospital, like a case manager. And I said, okay, well, then I went to nursing school and completely fell in love with critical care. Um, and then I, and then, and then social work was not an option anymore for me because I just love critical care. Um, and so I have always been an ICU nurse as a new graduate. I went straight into the ICU. I traveled and then I did um, cardiac surgery ICU for about 10 years. And then I went back to graduate school to get my acute care nurse practitioner and then have been in the ICU ever since. So um, what made you fall in love with critical care? What was the thing? Was there a moment or is it more of a gradual sort of transition? I like, um, gosh, I mean, it's going to sound very morbid and pretty terrible, but I like that um, in some, when someone is actually dying, um, you can save them and make them better or you can help transition them to death. And I think both are amazing. And I like both of those things. I like when someone, when you can save one, someone like in a trauma or, you know, an acute MI or something, and you can go in, you can do an intervention, you save them and they live. Um, it's there, it's, there's adrenaline. It's so satisfying. And then when someone has come to the end of their life and You've done everything that you can do, whether you should or not. And then they just don't make it. Helping the family and helping the patient transition to death is also very satisfying for me. I, I think it's beautiful in a way. So I like, I, I like being at the top of my game, at, the, at the, the height of someone's life or death, and being able to either save or transition. And I like that. That I feel like that's probably an episode for a whole podcast. It's this idea of of transitioning because I feel like death is one of those subjects that scares people to even talk oh, about. Oh, absolutely. And to be in a position where you can say, um, and then maybe there's some social work elements to that. I can imagine, like trying oh, to navigate. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. The complex, all that, all the sort of dynamics at play with with you know dealing with the family and all that. Um, so in this situation, I mean, obviously you're in the ICU, so you are dealing with critical care patients constantly. How has this pandemic changed uh, your workflow? Many, many ways. I think the most, yes, we've had COVID patients. And yes, that is very difficult. I think 
you know, first for the COVID patients, which is everyone's, you know, on their mind right now, um, you know, it's scary. We don't have a cure. Like every other disease and disease process, we know the cure and we know the pathway, the likely pathway. This we have no idea. So when I call a family member who is angry and sad and upset and crazy worried, I have no answers. I have no projections, which I usually do. And I usually can kind of comfort and kind of um, tell, tell a patient's family a disease pathway. In this situation, I have no idea. And I'm calling a family who's upset and worried once a day because I, I can't do more physically I cannot do more than that I've got multiple patients I need to make phone calls on and I just and I am there I mean yes they can call the nurses but I am the provider I call and I have no answers and it is a tough conversation to have for me to, to have and for them to hear and it kills me not to comfort I have no good news and I'm calling day after day you know with no good news um, for a while there and it was heart-wrenching for everyone I was in tears they were in tears you know for weeks at a time and it's just and then I go home to my house by myself which is another issue but I think the, the big thing is we don't know we don't know which makes it difficult for everyone we just don't have answers now that being said for a while there it was very very difficult the covid patients were very very sick and really not getting better and we did not have a plan they've all since in our icu been able to get off the ventilators and they have recovered and they've gotten out of the icu and some of them have been discharged from the hospital well that's great to hear so so you mentioned um, not knowing, and I feel like for everybody, even for people who are quarantined at home or you know, sheltering in place in their houses, you know, being tuned into the TV, trying to read as much as we can, and you know, facts coming at us at a million miles an hour, facts changing every single day, and but ultimately, it boils down to we really don't know, and I feel like um, that small little bit of uh, of reality is what is challenging for everybody and especially for somebody like yourself who is you know reliant on knowing something because you're dealing with patients who are you know scared and you know they might be you know nearing death not having answers i can only imagine that i mean that has to wreak havoc on your own mental health so i mean what are you guys doing do you guys have any sort of like program to make sure that you guys are are handling this okay and just make sure your mental health is not suffering from as a result Right. Well, exactly. And I posted, I have made a couple of Facebook posts addressing this specifically because especially for people in the ICU and the emergency room, we're used to traumas. We're used to blood and guts. We are used to people dying and heartbreak. Like that's what we do. The difference in this beast is that we don't have a cure. It's scaring everyone and people are dying and we, we don't really have an answer. I mean, yes, the Plaquenil has come out and yes, the azithromycin, which, you know, it's not the cure. So, and there's other side effects that come along with that. But I, I do think that for us on the front lines that are used to blood and guts, this COVID is a completely different beast. And I do think 
you add any comorbidity, mental health comorbidity, such as depression, alcohol, um, you know, bipolar, whatever, in addition to the social isolation, and you have a future PTSD of first line workers on your hands, um, and I, there is, there are programs out there. I have had friends um, um, reach out to me um, and let me know, like um, Talkspace is offering, donated like a thousand months of free therapy for um, frontline healthcare workers. Um, and Headspace is also another one who's offering um, um, some therapy, um, donating it for free, which it's difficult for us, I think, as caregivers to ask for help, but the people that do have comorbidities, I think it's absolutely necessary to, to not only do it for yourself, but have someone reach out to those people because we're not used to asking for help. We're the people that are there when you need help. Right, right. And I can only imagine what that's like, sort of navigating that process, knowing that you are the one that is usually the rock in this situation and, and, and recognizing that you need help. And, and, and one of the things we, we talked about a little bit before we hit record was this idea that um, you need to take care of yourself first. So you, you were telling a story about um, there was a patient. Do you want to just, uh, could you tell oh, us? Absolutely. We had a patient on the ventilator, COVID positive. Um, we were starting to wake him up and try to get him off the ventilator. So we lightened the sedation and, you know, that's always kind of a, you know, a, a process, but he was agitated. He was literally halfway out of the bed on the ventilator. And what's dangerous about that is if he were to self-extubate, which is take the tube out um, by himself, like you have all that COVID air in there, right? Because you've now broken the, the, the ventilator, you've broken the, um, the line, and, um, and your first instinct is to run in the room and help him. So I had a nurse and she was, she, she hurry up and got up when she saw that he was halfway out the bed. And I said, stop it. Stop right there. I yeah. said, you take your time and it's a process getting your PPE on. You have to get your, you have to get your gloves on a gown on a second set of gloves on. You've got to put your N95 on, you have your face shield and you have your, uh, your head shield. And, um, and you have to take your time because if you don't, yeah. you do one thing wrong, then, yeah. then you are potentially the next COVID victim. So, um, I made her stop. I made her take her time and then she went in the room and you have to do that. Like, and like you, it's exactly what you said when you're in an airplane and something happens, you put your oxygen on first and then you help other people, which is not instinctive. Yeah, and I think you've said that before, which is for nurses, people who are, or anybody in the in the medical profession who deals directly with patients, you are drawn to help people. And so your first instinct is to help. And so I can imagine having to rethink your process has to be, it's really challenging. What's that been like for you in your coworkers? I think it, it would be a different experience if we were going through like what New York is going through, because we have a handful of COVID patients. They have hundreds and thousands of COVID patients. And, and, you know, we almost came to a point in our ICU where we had to let someone go um, just because, um, you know, do you, do you use up a ventilator for an extended vent time when they're not improving or do you just let them go for the next patient? We, we fortunately did not have to make that decision, but I think New York is having to make that decision. Like they're, 
you know, um, who's the most likely to survive and, and go with them. And I think that is where, you know, and we, with that, with that one patient that we had, you know, I think all of us were like, oh my God, like, I cannot believe we've come to this. Like, that's going to be terrible. Like, I think that it, that was all very heavy on our hearts as we were caring for this, this man. I cannot imagine what it's like in New York, like to have, um, to choose between maybe having someone live or potentially actually saving someone else. And that's, I think that's, that's very hard. And that, the first thing I think about when you talk about that is like battlefield triage. Absolutely. That's exactly what it is. And that's, that's scary. I mean, and honestly, we had a meeting with my, my, the intensivist, the medical director of the ICU, we had a meeting and we threw out specifics. Who do you Mm. save? Do you save a 65 year old with hypertension or, and no other comorbidities or a 35 year old mom of two with MS? How do you, how do you make that choice? And it's, it's, and, and thank God we have not had to, but I'm sure they're out there right now in New York or other hot spots having to make that choice. Oh my goodness. I can't even imagine. And so for you guys, you were saying like there's one patient and sort of the stress that you endured for that one patient to your point is magnified if you're in a place like New York and you're having to do that all the time. Oh my goodness. So, um, so tell me, you mentioned earlier that you're coming home to an empty house, but you're you're also a mother. So can you just describe the changes in your personal life and how that's um, how that's affecting you? So yeah, so I um, I have two children, a nine year old and a ten year old, and gosh, I love them so much. And um, they, I mean, I've been a single mom for five years now, and um, it's the every day of school and after school and me working and homework and sports and volleyball and soccer and all that stuff. And then the weekend of the March 21st and 22nd, it kind of all came to a head and I had to make the decision. I'm actively walking into COVID rooms. Is that is what best for my, is what's best for my children. And the answer was no. So I talked to the, the children's father and he agreed to take them and so they're in Maryland, and um, I have a boyfriend who we've been together for two and a half years. He's definitely my forever person, but he has two children, and he shares custody with his ex-wife, and his ex-wife is like, I do not want you around Catherine if you're going to be around the children. Oh, wow. So I, he, I mean, you know, he had to kind of choose between me and his children, which is absolutely no choice at all. So he's, he's seeing his children and he's worried about me, but he's supportive of me. Um, and the reality is that I am, I feel like very mentally strong and I know that my children are safe. I know that my boyfriend, he's being a good father and that he loves me and he's not going anywhere. But I worry for people who aren't quite as mentally strong and have an underlying addiction or an underlying mental mental issue, and they come home by themselves. And let me tell you, it is not easy. I mean, after having some of those bad days and coming home, I'll drink a bottle of wine um, yeah. by myself. I'm sure. I think that's okay, right? No, but, um, <laughs> but you know, and, and I had to kind of check myself and I'm like, Catherine, yeah. what are you doing? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. 
and but it's like you you don't have anyone to say it's okay you don't have anyone interacting with that is not at work thank god i have to say i have the most amazing co-workers mm. and we kind of feel like we're all in this together we have the same cooties um <laughs> we see the same thing we go through the same thing but and, and our community has been amazing yeah. and i feel I feel that like it's kind of twofold. I hate that this happened, this pandemic happened, but nurses and and NPs and PAs and MDs have been doing this job that we're already that we're doing right now for so many years, and like no one has without any accolades or without any acknowledgement. True. And and the the, the only difference is now they're doing it on a disease with no cure. Right. Which is amazing. Right. And it's also amazing that, you know, I mean, I'm sure you get some training in triaging patients, but it can't be like the same training, a battlefield, uh, you know, MP, the battlefield doctors. It's different though, right? They're, you know, with, with the training they go through, I'm sure is, is you know, it's you're dealing with a battlefield wound situation is, is probably a little bit different than what you're training. Well, and the right? thing with COVID is it kind of presents in different ways. Right. I mean, now they're showing, I mean, we've had somebody um, present with nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. Really? Yeah, 14, I think like 14% of COVID patients present with GI upset. Like, so they weren't on contact. They right. had no idea. They weren't having respiratory issues. So why would you suspect COVID? So right. we're having to kind of rethink our whole, our whole thing. And it makes it difficult for patients that come in like with underlying um, congestive heart failure or COPD or anything. They come in with shortness of breath. Well, yeah, they're short of breath. They have COPD or CHF, but is it COVID? Right. So you rule them out for COVID, which the test, the testing is an issue because yep. who knows how long it's going to take. But then the care that they actually need, like if they need an echocardiogram, they can't get one because they're suspected COVID and the echo tech won't go in the room. Oh, wow. So there's all different sorts of things that we're dealing with and trying to care for other patients. Yeah. Uh, while, while we're pa pa um, caring for the COVIDs. That's one thing I wanted to ask you about is, is, you know, um, what's happening to other patients. Do you guys, are you guys able to manage? I mean, you mentioned that, you know, obviously it's not as bad where you are as it is in New York city, but it still has to be a challenge. I can imagine, um, making sure other patients are taken care of. Yeah. Um, if they're not being ruled out for COVID, um, then it's then it's kind of status quo. They can get their echocardiograms. They can get the things that they need. If they have to rule out for COVID first, it does hinder their normal care that they would normally get. Unfortunately, I think who's taken the brunt of the situation, honestly, is the patient's families. Um, I had a patient who had a cardiac arrest and had an anoxic injury. So, um, they um, almost, so almost brain dead, um, but not quite. But the family had to decide whether to take them off the ventilator, like terminally. How do you make that decision as a family without physically seeing that patient? Mm, yeah. You can't. You you cannot make that decision without themselves always doubting themselves for the rest of their life if they did the right thing. Yeah. You know, as a medical professional. I would not, I feel like I would not allow them to do the wrong thing. And the absolute right thing was to take their family member off the ventilator. But how do they do that without seeing the patient? And it's limited now, you know, visitors are limited and it's like, 
Um, technically, in our hospital, you're not allowed to come visit a patient unless they're considered comfort care, which means no ventilator, no, um, you know, they've, they've decided that the patient is going to die imminently. Well, if you're trying to make that decision, how do you do that without seeing the family, the family, mm. the patient? How do you do that? I don't know. And that is very, very hard to try and walk family and support the family through that. They're so angry. And I, I don't blame them. Yeah. So are they just making these decisions um, like over the phone? Like how, what kind of interactions are there? Or, is, or how would the interactions change, I guess, as a result of all this? So pretty much everything is done over the phone. Um, wow. We've had to try and figure out a way I've used my phone for um, for a COVID patient. Um, I use my FaceTime. I, I put my took my phone out of my case, put it in a plastic bag, had it in the. I gave the family member my personal cell phone number wow. and FaceTime because you just need the you just need to see for yourself. Yeah. Um, but the majority of things for like non COVID patients that are end of life are done over the phone and pretty much the family, you know, we try to paint the picture as in detail as we can, which is very morbid and very difficult actually. Um, and the family kind of decides if they're ready for the patient to be end of life. And then once they decide that, then they're allowed to come into the hospital two at a time. Wow. And um, it's, you know, not three, not four, only two. And if you have a, you know, a son, a daughter and a husband, it's only two at a time. Wow. And so those are for COVID patients and non COVID patients. Yeah. Um, no, only, only end of life. So, okay. so if, if a COVID patient, if they if they decided to make them comfort and they're going to imminently die, then they can come in. Okay. Yeah. And, but they have to only come in at two at a time? Is that two at a time. So is that something that, is that a policy that's new as a result of all this? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And how is, how's that? I mean, it's got to be challenging for you. I mean, because you, you said one of the things you enjoy is sort of being there for the family you know, as during those moments. So I guess that's got to be challenging for you to it's challenging because sometimes you don't understand um suffering until you see it mm. like it's very easy to describe someone on a ventilator um you know with end-stage organ fail you know multi-organ system failure you can describe it in detail all you want but until someone sees someone that they love looking half dead and like they're suffering mm. you have to see it you cannot describe it and so mm. it's very difficult to try and describe to a family that is very angry i mean and, and I, they're not and we don't take it personally because sure. um we can't it's that they're angry at the situation and we don't yeah. blame them one bit and we yeah. completely empathize with them but it's out of our control and but calling family after family after family, telling in detail about death and dying, and then have them be angry is, at the end of the day, it's a little soul-sucking. Um, yeah. So, The fact that you're only drinking one bottle of wine at the end of the day is impressive. I think I would be going through okay, a couple. A that's on a Tuesday. <laughs> regular <laughs> Tuesday. Just a regular Tuesday. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, Catherine, just tell me... Um, uh, whew, um, 
of the patients that are coming in, is there confusion about the testing? Are people getting tested that want to get tested? Like, just tell me about that process because I know a lot of people have have expressed a worry about access to testing, testing validity, how long it takes. Let's just talk about a little bit about that process. So I think for the most part, I think if you have symptoms, if you have cough, you know, fever, you know, even abdominal upset GI symptoms, um, and you're just sick, stay at home. I mean, they, they're encouraging people to stay at home. I mean, once you are starting have to having the symptoms of shortness of breath, that is the time to go to the emergency department. They're testing the most high risk people. So if you are hypoxic, so if, if your O2 sat is down and you're having the shortness of breath, then you know it's it's they'll test you. And then then also the, the big thing is the effectiveness of the testing. So nasopharyngeal, when they when they stick a Q-tip up into your nose, that's only 60%. So in the ICU, which is scary. So 40% yeah. are false negatives. Yeah. So in the ICU, what we're doing is we're sending two nasopharyngeal rule outs. And, um, and if you still aren't comfortable, then they'll send sometimes a sputum, which means that like they'll get um, secretions from your lungs, like through the mm -hmm. ventilator, they'll send that, which is, okay. um, um, I believe that's in the 80% um, effectiveness. So right. We're sending multiple sputum specimens, but for the most part, we're testing people that are most um, at risk and having the most symptoms. Um, but if, you know, and I think, you know, it's easy to forget, a lot of people do recover. So, you know, yeah. I don't think testing is, you know, having a positive or a negative test. If you're doing what you're supposed to do with the social distancing, if you're sick, you stay home, you quarantine yourself, you quarantine yourself from your family, and if you get better, you get better. But do you really need a test if there's limited availability? I don't know. Right, right. And so then there's like, you know, epidemiologists who are, who are, who are talking about, you know, we need to test to understand the spread of the pandemic. But then I guess from a healthcare perspective, you know, is it necessary to overwhelm the healthcare system with unnecessary tests? Because then, you know, as you can't provide adequate care if you're spending all your time doing this and, and patients who really need care are not able to get it because you're doing all this. So there's so many really interesting sort of opposing forces, like people trying to figure out the extent of the pandemic while people actually providing care, you know, are on the front lines doing it and sort of how all those forces work together or oppose each other has been really interesting to see. And, 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 and ultimately what we talked about in the beginning was that we still just don't really know a whole lot, right? We don't. We don't. <laughs> we really don't. Um, can you just tell me, like, I'm sure your routine is is different, but you know, with the with the newer like uh, personal protective equipment like requirement, you mentioned sort of the process of what that's like: two pairs of gloves, a gown, a face mask, all these different things. But, but just tell me about like when you leave your house and when you come home. Do you have some sort of like decontamination process that you go through? Talk about that. I do. So. I was a diva at work. I mean, I worked in heels. I would code somebody in heels. I would intubate somebody in heels. I put a line in somebody in heels. Um, so now we, the hospital has provided us with scrubs and a cleaning service. So now awesome. I'll go to work. I'll put on scrubs. I'll work all day. Before I leave, I'll change out of the dirty scrubs, put on clean scrubs, walk out. I leave my shoes in the car. I walk to my front door barefoot. 
Um, I walk in the house and clean scrubs. I go straight upstairs. I take them off and I shower. And then I'll put the clean scrubs that I had back on, walk into the hospital, and then change again into clean scrubs. And so I, I always have, you know, clean, walk out of the hospital and clean scrubs. Right, right. Wow. So was that something that you personally figured out or was that something that said, that came to you from above and or from the administration? They were like, this is the new process or how did all that play we out? We were given a choice. So the, my medical director of the ICU at Beach General, um, he, he got it available to us. It was never available to us, but he made it available to us and told us it was an option. And if we wanted to, we could. And so now we all are. I mean, we all used to wear, the providers all used to wear regular professional clothes, but now we all wear scrubs just because, you know, if we're walking into COVID rooms and it is considered um, potentially airborne for three hours, if it gets on us in any way, then um, we're just being safe, extra, extra cautious. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's probably makes a lot of sense. So I guess, I guess a lot of hospitals have specific wings for COVID patients. Is that, is that correct to try to just keep them apart from the rest of the population. Is that correct? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like um, we have a, in our ICU, we call it the COVID corner. And um, it's like, um, I think six beds designated just for COVIDs. Um, and they, they have it um, locked off from the rest of the ICU. Um, and then other parts of our hospital have, um, they've made a designated just like COVID wing, just to keep it just, you know, them separate from the rest of the hospital. So you mentioned that you guys have a pretty good camaraderie that your your coworkers and you like you all sort of support each other and, mm -hmm. and that's probably a big part of of keeping your uh, your mental health um, absolutely like okay um, do you do anything uh, when you're not working to unwind in addition to gobbling down some wine like what have you been doing to sort of just pass the time at home when when you're uh, when you're not working well I mean I've redone the kids' rooms I've nice. come up on laundry. <laughs> um, I, my boyfriend and I share custody. We have a rescue, um, blue tick coonhound dog. All fun. Yeah. Her name's Alice. You know, I thought she would keep, I mean, I go get her when I'm off to just to have another heartbeat in the house. Yeah. Um, but she, I don't even know where she's at. She's always in the other room. She's kind of like a cat, but it's nice. <laughs> To have a another heartbeat. Yeah, um, absolutely. I, think I mean, I, I don't think I realized that I don't have a lot of hobbies besides drinking wine and socializing <laughs> with my friends. Well, um, if it works, what do you have yeah. to need? I mean, I'm not a cook, um, especially for one. I mean, I'm not even <laughs> making chicken nuggets and macaroni and cheese for my kids anymore. So yeah. um, I don't know. I have no <laughs> idea what I'm doing with my time. <laughs> Well, it seems to be working out for you. So uh, why change if, it, if, you, if whatever you're doing works, you know, why change? Yeah. I mean, the time it has gone by fast. Work really does help. I'm, yeah. I'm glad that I have the job that I have and the amazing people that I work with. And our, like I said, our community, it's because you feel like when I'm home, sometimes when I get home and I'm having a little bit of a pity party, I'm like, no one understands what we're going through. I'm alone. <laughs> nobody cares. But, yeah. they, but just having people send meals, you know, um, you know, the local businesses and what they're already going through too, and they send us meals, it, it completely uplifts morale in the ICU when we get a meal. Um, oh, that's awesome. It happens more days than it doesn't. And it is really? really amazing to see. Like, I mean, I, 
I mean, that is getting us through. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me, tell me more about that. What sort of things have you seen um, from either individuals or businesses that have sort of lifted your spirits or made you like refresh your hope in humanity? Because this this is a pretty this is an event that kind of you know challenges us in a lot of different ways. But a lot of people have stepped up. So what what are the kind of, what kind of things have you seen that have like said, oh, that's awesome. So we have, there's signs at work when we pull up, there's people have been um, writing on the sidewalk, like um, your heroes, thank you for what you're doing. All these pictures on the sidewalk at work, signs, handmade signs that people have made. Mm. Um, thank you for coming to work, you're a hero. Local businesses have donated, they've done, um, donated breakfast, um, coffee, lunches, supper. Wow. I mean, so much. I mean, uh, I was talking to my friend who works at the ER at uh, the Children's Hospital. Outback donated um, a ton of like um, steak, chicken, like a uh, completely separate meal. We've had Chick-fil-A. We've had Domino's. We've had Tropical Smoothie. We've had Anchor Alleys. I mean, we've had so many businesses. My children's um, school, they go to Thoroughgood Elementary School, which is a public elementary school. All of the teachers had all of the children throughout the whole school write us um, thank you, handmade thank you cards. And even, even the receptionists they included. I mean, oh, that's awesome. It, and, and with like cookies and lunch, I mean, it has just been amazing. I wow. mean, really, it, it brings tears to my eyes because that that is what is getting me through when I don't have my children or and I go to work and I see that, um, you know, we're not forgotten, that people are thinking about us. And, and you know, my, um, some of my coworkers have said, gosh, you know, we're not really not like New York. I feel guilty for taking this stuff. And I said, you know yeah. what? I feel like it it you're willing to though you're here you're willing to walk into a covid patient's room and and risk with this unknown disease i was like you're here we're here and we go home by ourselves and yeah. and I, I i'm so grateful for my community for thinking about us that's beautiful you know i've one thing i've noticed is that it's it's really exposed a lot of the flaws of society this thing right because of all the different things that we we have done traditionally that are now sort of crumbling underneath our feet while at the same time it's revealed uh the real strength of character of a lot of people so it seems like i guess it's probably in times of of stress in times of war in times of pandemics you really see the worst and the best of people and and, and so at least for me trying to it's been challenging trying to you know focus on those things but when i do read about them or you do see or sort of see somebody helping somebody else or going out of their way to do a nice thing it, it definitely uh sustains me and i can imagine for somebody like yourself you know working in such a stressful environment it sustains you on a deeper level so that's, oh, absolutely that's, well there's a saying i don't know how it goes but it's something like um in time in bad times or times of war and pandemics look for the helpers I mean, because they're out there and it is, it, it gets you through mm. it really does. So how are your kids doing? You mentioned they're with their dad. And so it's gotta be challenging for them. They're ready to come home. Oh yeah, but they're ready to come home. And I, you know, I don't think that they quite understand, but my daughter's 10 and she's like a 37 year old, 10 year old. <laughs> um, I think you know, I think she's proud of me, um, you know, but there, she doesn't, she's, she's ready to come home now. Yeah. Like she's done with it. 
Um, yeah. But you know, they're hanging in there, and their school and teachers are amazing. And um, you know, I think they're supporting them too, knowing that I'm away, and um, I, I can FaceTime them every day. I mean, I'm. I mean, just think if this whole thing happened, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. I mean, right. I, I am able to FaceTime my children every single day and talk yeah. to them on the phone every single day. That's huge. If, if I couldn't, I mean, I don't know how we, I, I can see their face every single day. I can see that they're doing well, you know? Right. Right. Um, so, I mean, I don't know how I would do it otherwise. You know, it's, um, it is interesting how, technology is this sort of traditionally it's a double-edged sword right it enables us to do all these really cool things but also disconnects us from you know nature and things like that but in this case it's really all we have to connect to people because you know you can't you just well it's so funny because before this happened you know everyone said we were so disconnected like from from people and now right. that we are disconnected, we crave the human interaction now. Yeah. No one ever, I think, <laughs> three months ago was like, I just want to be with people. I want to talk to people. I mean, right. and it just shows you we can t we can still text. We can still, but you just want right. to be with people, even if they're strangers, like out right. at a bar, you know, right. just for whatever reason. It's so true. Um, it really has revealed the, the deep social nature of our species. Uh, even for Even for those, you know, um, misanthropes who prefer to be in the closet somewhere, you know, doing right. uh, nothing, still craving, you know, ultimately craving some sort of human interaction. I, I've been joking with my fiance about, um, you know, once all this clears up, there's probably just gonna be millions of babies born nine months after that. So everybody's just going to feel liberated to just have there's some human interaction. I don't know if you've seen it or not, but there's a meme. It's really funny. It's like, I see you in ED nurses. We see you. And then it's like, um, in nine months, labor and delivery and mother baby nurses, you're up. Right. <laughs> exactly. Catherine, this has been so great. Is there uh, anything else you want to talk about? Any, any other stories you want to share that you think um, people might appreciate hearing? No, but thank you so much for bringing light to this um, this whole issue. I think um, you know the bottom line is frontline workers are putting they are ultimately putting their lives on the line um, and potentially their families if you want to get really dramatic and realistic about it. But yeah. and then they're and they're potentially going home, you know, like myself by themselves. But I have people in my corner to support me and I just worry about people that maybe don't or have underlying issues and just to, if someone knows a frontline worker um, in the ICUs and emergency rooms, then to maybe just reach out, even if it's somebody that you wouldn't normally, just to reach out and just to check on them and make sure that they're okay. Um, I think in this time, like it just, it can't hurt. Mm, absolutely. Because those are the people that are usually okay. Right, right. Absolutely. But thank you. I appreciate your time, David. Oh, it's your time. Your time is more important than mine. I th the only thing I'm struggling with is is just yeah, being at home, and that's you know, it's like I can deal with that. Well, Catherine, uh, thank you so much uh, for your time. Super appreciate it, and thank you so much for doing what you do. Keep of it up. course, thank you, David. See you in 20 years. I know, right? <laughs> when are we gonna have a high school reunion? When is that happening? <laughs> that's never happened. I it's never happened. Kathy Waldrop was our president. Is she? She's supposed to do it, right? Is that how that works? We got to get on that. I mean, come on. I know. Like the, the 10 year went by, the 15 year, now the 20 year went by two years ago, for God's sakes. <laughs> maybe, maybe for, you know, who knows, 25. 30. After the pandemic. Right, please. Oof. 
Yeah. All right. All right great David. chatting with you. Take care, Catherine. Thank Bye, you. Bye, David. So we were just speaking with Catherine Tillery. She's a nurse practitioner in the ICU at Sentara Virginia Beach General Hospital. This is Isolated Together, a podcast about our struggles and triumphs against COVID-19. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at QUPodcasts. You can also email us at QUPodcasts at QU.edu. Reach out to us for some show ideas. Reach out to us if you have a story to share. We want to hear from you. We really do. We want people to talk about their lives, talk about the things that they're dealing with, and share stories that are inspiring and encourage everyone to to be strong uh, because we are isolated together, but we can get through this together. For more information on the podcast, visit isolateddogetherpodcast.org. Isolated Together is a production of the Quinnipiac University Podcast Studio. I'm the host, David Roche. Thanks for listening.